Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Here we go, boys. Go. Ooh, I love that sound. This is a good one. everybody welcome to the full scale outdoors podcast waterfall wednesday edition i'm your host nick johnson today i did something a little bit different for uh today's episode and i reached out to my social media audience and i asked uh for some q and a questions that everybody might have and um comments topics of conversations not really knowing what to expect but um, just kind of reaching and grasping for straws at topics of conversation for today's waterfall wednesday and i gotta say um you guys came through uh, really great. There is actually some awesome topics of conversation and questions that were asked, some uh, complex ones and some just really simple ones that are actually all really great. Um, can't thank you guys enough. And I got I got a lot of them. So we might have to make a two-part into this uh, or not. I don't know. I'll, let's try to bang through as many of these as uh, as we can. And we'll just jump right into it. And my very first question I got was from uh, Ethan Mullink, and he wants to know my past experiences with hunting with pits and tips for hunting out of them. My past experiences with tips, typically pits, are typically going to be uh, where I'm either being guided in a pit or where I am the guide out of a pit. That's my past experience. I haven't hunted out of a pit a ton in my life. Most all of my experiences are are not in pits, either in layout blinds, A-frames, ghillie suits, you know, just laying out in whites for snows. Um, pits are not the norm situation for me. So, but I can tell you there are differences, uh, big differences for how you want to set up your decoys and set up your hunt for when you're hunting out of a pit versus a layout blind or an edge hide or anything like that. And the main thing is with pits is you can actually hide so you can put decoys like around you and also you're what i found too like when i'm typically setting up a hunt for layout blind situations i i got the layout blinds pointed in a direction um and then i want those birds to be landing straight out in front of where i've pointed those layout blinds somewhere between like 19 and 26 yards 
ideally where I want those birds like actually like trying to set their feet down. With a pit hunting situation, typically that's not the case. What's actually a little bit easier and a little bit safer is to set up to where the birds are actually trying to land like right on top of the pit lids. And the reason for that is when you come out so low out of a pit blind when you are swinging your gun around, um, you don't. You really want to be swinging your gun up and not around when it comes to hunting out of a pit, because sometimes you got dogs that are running around. Um, safety concerns. Obviously, other people's heads are popping up. If you're uh, getting birds to come in on one side or the other, and then people are coming out low and then shooting their guns low. Obviously, a lot of pit situations are different, and they a lot of times people do have pits set up to where you can shoot at finishing bar birds like 20 yards out. But I mean, if it's like just a flat field situation with a pit out in the middle of it, I really want those birds trying to land on the lids. And then when we say kill them, we come up and the birds escape basically by going straight up into the air. So when you, you're taking your first shot, I mean, you're shooting up and you're continuing to shoot up. And hunting out of pits is just an awesome experience because you can get those scenarios where birds are like actually trying to land on top of you, which is just super difficult and rather rare when it comes to like layup line situations. Like I don't usually ever put myself, you don't want that situation to be happening in a layout blind where birds are landing that close. You really do want birds to be landing like 20 yards away from the layout blinds because if you get birds coming in too close to the layout blinds, they just split left and right. And um, then you, you, get, you run into a problem where you just aren't shooting as many birds out of each flock because they escape so fast and people swinging left and right ends up with people ringing each other's ears. It's just a lot different shooting situation and how you want birds actually coming in to your decoys and how, you know, like how you want them to present themselves to the shooters. Your shooters are gonna be standing up um, opposed to sit laying down. They're gonna be able to swing 360 degrees um, opposed to like layout lines. It's, it's just, it is a very different hunting scenario that requires a different decoy setup and a different mindset for how do we want these birds finishing based on how are we going to be shooting at these birds effectively and safely. And when I say effectively, what I mean is like killing the most amount of birds out of every single flock. Like if there's three of us hunting, we've got nine shotgun shells in the gun. How do we try to kill nine birds on every flock? You know what I mean? Um, you're just maximizing your kill potential. Where like with a pit, you want those birds coming in close and escaping high with layout lines you want those birds coming in 25 yards out and escaping but not getting out of those 10 and 2 shooting lanes that are super um fixed pretty much like when you you have like a fixed shooting lane when uh, you're in a layout blind, where in a pit blind you kind of have a 360 degree shooting lane as long as it's mostly up towards the sky, if that makes sense. Let's move on. Question number two. How many decoys for a honker migrator spread by Rockin' R22? Another awesome question. Um, I always like to reference back to my best ever migrator honker hunt, and I was using 32 decoys on that hunt. My ideal number, uh, what would I say is, the, what? how many decoys should you set out for a migrator honker hunt? 
10 dozen's a good number. 10 dozen full bodies out in a field. If you're hunting a water setup, um, four dozen. 48, 48 floaters is a quite impressive migrator honker spread. Uh, 10 dozen to 12 dozen full bodies is absolutely plenty of decoys. You, it's When it comes to hunting migrators successfully, so much of it is just like nailing the time, the day. Like it's happening on... Tuesday morning to early Tuesday afternoon. Can you be there for it? And if you are there for it, uh, if you got 10 dozen decoys out or if you got 40 dozen decoys out, I don't think the decoy percentage is going to go up or down considerably. As long as you're there on the right time, you guys are going to have a really, really great shoot. Um, but when you start putting out so many fucking decoys, then you just get birds landing all over in them. So just set out your standard, regular old 10 dozen spread where you're pretty sure you're going to keep those birds landing within your within your kill window, which this is actually a really good question. I mean, um, just being there is the most important thing. When I did 32 decoys, I and that was my best migrator hunt. Well, also, that was like one of the best migrator hunting days, you know, like it was it could I could have been using 10 decoys and we would have smashed them just that hard just because the day was so good. But just like on your average day in, day out migrator hunt, like I think it might happen. What should we do? Hey, let's just throw out 10 dozen. We'll see what happens. And that's a good rule to live by, too, because a lot of times when you go out for a migrator day, you could be wrong. So what I'm trying to get at is I would back down people from using like those 30, 40, 50 dozen size decoy spreads for migrators just because A, it's really not necessary. Um, and B, you can have birds kind of landing all over the place. See what if the migration doesn't really happen. Now we got this fucking mess we got to clean up that really didn't reap any sort of rewards. Um, and D, I think you guys get the point. That's kind of what I'm going after. Like, here's a here's a here's a uh, a reason to set out that many decoys. A, it's early season. It's warm. Everybody's excited to get out. Everybody wants to use their toys. Everybody wants to uh, throw everything they got at them. And if that's part of the fun for you on a migrator day, hell, go for it. Like, it really isn't going to be a detriment to the hunt. I'm just saying you don't have to. But if you want to, there's lots of reasons to do it. Hell, it's, you know, everybody's excited to get out there. Everybody's probably got some decoys they bought over the summer that they want to take the plastic off and throw out and get some blood on, get some dirt on. It's, uh, you know... There's usually a lot of people involved on a migrator hunt, so, I mean, the work isn't too bad, but you can just kind of run into a problem where you just kind of, like, got decoys fucking everywhere. <laughs> but, hey, if that's part of the fun for you, then have at it. I'm just saying, you know, if you're just be there when it happens and good things are going to happen for you. Okay, we got Atlantic Flyway Snow Geese Migration and Hatch on Bylet Island by James Sykes 8. Uh, shit, I actually, uh, you piqued my interest, James, uh, and I meant to Google this and find out what the hell Bylot Island was, but I totally forgot, but now, uh, I'm definitely gonna look into that. The best I can tell you about Atlantic Flyway Snow Geese, or 
what I can tell you about their migration and where it's at is I really I really only saw the one thing that came out in the Delta Waterfowl Migration Update March, which came out eh, four or five days ago. Um, I guess depending on when you hear this, Dale just told me this might not come out till next week, but um, they, I, I had heard that they were all scattered out, and that's just based on that that one report over on the Atlantic Flyway. Favorite Wisconsin goose hunt, Jared Gray asks me, and I saw Jared today at the gym, and I went right up to him, and I showed him the picture. It was a hunt that both me and Jared were on. It was September 7th of 2020, which I believe was uh, Labor Day. Hell, me and Dale even did a uh, Waterfall Wednesday podcast right after that. It was uh, it was an epic migration day. Just, it was very, very early in the season. You don't normally get epic migration days on September 7th. And um, we just beat the brakes off of them. And uh, I think that's actually a pretty good listen, too, if you guys can find that. I wish I knew what Waterfall Wednesday that was. Um, Brandon Nickel sent me a message. Pigeons, 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 he said. And fuck, man. We could go on and on and on about pigeons. I can't wait to get get after them. But uh, Brandon, didn't we talk on the phone about pigeons for like 90 minutes recently and you still want more pigeon conversation? Come on, bro. You're pigeoning me out. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to keep this podcast waterfall related though because we got a lot more... Um, a lot more waterfowl-related questions to go through, and when summer gets going, we're going to be talking a lot more about pigeons and scratching that wing-shooting itch. That is for damn sure. Any traction for increased pintail drake limits in the Pacific Flyway, S. Travis, Travis Goldman. Not that I've heard of, Travis. Um, in fact, I, I, I haven't been hearing anything except for bad news for pintails. Um... As far as the increased pintail drake limit, if uh, any listeners out there aren't aware of this, um, I believe it was, it is Delta Waterfowl that was trying to make a case for increasing the bag limits on pintail drakes because they think there's too many drakes within the population and that's actually hurting the population. So if you're wondering how the hell could having too many, like too high of a Drake ratio amongst a population actually hurt the population, um, rape, they think, is what's doing that. Like they think that there are, there. You, everybody's kind of aware, like, because we see it down in the lower 48 about how rapey mallards are. Well, I guess uh, pintail drakes are also pretty damn rapey. And they have a really outbalanced ratio of drakes to hens within that species. And that there are so many pintail drakes like raping and that's causing mortality rate within the hens. And just basically running them until exhaustion, which is kind of fucked up. But you also combine that with um, pintail hens. They like to nest in that short, like a... Uh, that wheat crop, like wheat crop from the year previous, like they they nest in really short grass, and that can include last year's agricultural harvest. So up in the Saskatchewan and uh, Alberta prairies, they're actually nesting in last year's wheat stubble, and then the tractors come around to seed for this coming year, they plow it up or whatever the hell they do, and it's either A, destroying nests, B, killing the hen, or B, both. Now, that's how they think that they've ended up with a um, 
out of whack ratio between hens and drakes and they think that having this ratio is exacerbating the problem. Now, I don't know how that is doing in terms of like, are regulators really, um, are, are they start, have they started going down that path to increase this pintail drake limit? I don't know that. However, um, there are some big people and there are some big players in the conservation space that are pushing for that namely delta waterfall and they do have some youtube videos on it i believe that are uh actually they're, they're worth a watch they're, they're really interesting okay favorite molt migrator spreads for water and field by ethan gronwald another great topic of conversation uh we have kind of covered it a little bit my favorite molt migrator spread in for field, like I said, is any just ten dozen. Just get out there, really. Would you 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 really got to just get out there and do it and water. Um, man, if you can get thirty water decoys out there, if you can get thirty floater honkers out there, um, you're pushing some weight. Get if if you can get fifty out there, get on out there and get it done. Uh, one thing that I was doing was I've never had a nice boat. Uh, the, the only boat I've ever had in my life is a Karsten Pintail, which is just a fiberglass boat for a guy to throw a couple dozen, like, duck floaters in, right? So I was tr I was doing a couple of, like, molt migrator hunts, like, around the Twin Cities. I did this for a few years, and I couldn't get very many goose floaters in there. So what I ended up doing was um, bought these V-boards, and they're called Sitting Ducks V-boards. And basically, they uh, are a bracket for silhouettes, and they'll, they'll hold three silhouettes per V-board, and they fold up flat. And then you go out and you put... I could get a bunch of those into my Karsten Pintail boat. And I was running um, 36, like 36 silhouettes on water. See the 36? Ah, it was 36. On a lot of my hunts, it was 36. So I was running 12 boards. I'd have 12 boards with uh, three silhouettes on there. And that would be easy to put in that Karsten Pintail boat. And I'd go out to uh, some local ponds and stuff, especially like after work. I used to get off work at like two o'clock in the afternoon. And if there was like cloud cover and north winds and kind of starting to get chilly and cloudy, I would, uh, I'd run out there and do that just to try to get a few more numbers like by myself in a, in a boat that just has manpower. Didn't even have a trolling motor for that thing or anything. So I, I do think that when it comes to hunting on water, um, visibility is a big, big issue out there. Just as long as the birds can see that you're down there and can hear your calling, uh, good things are going to happen. For that, I like to get up or over 30, 35 decoys in the water. And uh, I think we kind of covered the, the field spread here pretty good. Sandhill crane hunting expansion um, is a question that Nate asked. Now, that is something that's come up. I live in Wisconsin. It's come up in Wisconsin. But that's something that has to go towards the legislator. A lot of states do allow sandhill crane hunting. Minnesota allows it in the northwest zone. Um, it's 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 something that will be coming up more and more as the sandhill crane populations increase. But I do know like there are populations of cranes that are doing better than other populations of cranes. Now I don't know enough about it to say like oh the mid-continent population this and that population that. I don't know enough about it like that. All I can say is that if you live in an area where you have noticed 
the crane population booming, and I do, um, it's a good thing to reach out to your state biologist or take those waterfowl surveys that you got and see if there's any prospect for expanding the crane hunting in your area. And I do think that we are going to continue to see crane hunting expanding across the United States because what I've been seeing about such and such crane population this, such and such crane population that, is that they're doing good. Like, this crane hunting thing keeps coming up, and it's not because, like, people don't see them. Like, people are seeing them more and more and more and more, and they're like, dude, they call these things ribeye of the sky. Is our state or is my area going to open this shit up? Well, take your surveys, ask those questions, um, shoot an email off to your DNR, like, hey, is this a possibility? I know in Wisconsin... It's something that has to go through the actual legislative uh, process. So it's got a, you know, House, Senate, signed by a governor type of a thing. It's not just the DNR can just say, um, yep, open hunting to next week. And I know they were making a push for it uh, last year. And then that fucking idiot or that group of idiots in Oklahoma shot four whipping cranes. And that really put a kibosh on the talks. And I haven't seen anything come up ever since then. So something like that can be a major, major setback, even though it happened, you know, a thousand fucking miles away in Oklahoma, some idiots shoot some sandhill cranes, or I'm sorry, uh, whooping cranes, uh, that can have nationwide reverberations when your legislator, your DNR is considering the expansion of crane hunting because whooping cranes do get mixed in with the sandhill crane population. We have, um, what Quill Lake geese really are. Okay, so a Quill Lake goose, if you are not familiar, a Quill Lake goose is basically a goose that gets a form of leucism or is leucistic, which is a type of albinism or albino, and they're commonly referred to as quill lake goose. Now, a quill lake goose is going to have most commonly a white bar going across its chest. We're talking about a Canada goose, and this feather deformity is most commonly seen on giant Canada geese. Also most commonly seen on the highline population of Canada geese, which are a more western-based goose that migrates through Montana, um, Wyoming, Western South Dakota, Western North Dakota, winters in Colorado, um, Utah. The highline population of geese seems to get this quite a bit, but all, all um, Canada geese do get what's called this Quill Lakes. And so it used to be thought that it was from the Quill Lake region of Saskatchewan, and that is not untrue. There's pl- I saw four Quill Lake geese while in Saskatchewan myself. I was hunting way western Saskatchewan. I saw four of them, uh, seen, I think, two dead and at least four alive. And I don't know if some of the ones I seen alive were uh, me seeing the same one maybe a week later somewhere else. But they are very, very easy to see, especially when they're walking, actually. Um, but a Quill Lake goose is, it's nothing more than a common leucistic trait that geese get. If if a goose is going to get some white feathers on it, very commonly you're going to see it show up in this quill lake formation. If you google it, you'll be able to see what I mean. Extreme forms of quill lake leucism 
is going to be you get that fat white bar across its titties. Sometimes it's referred to as a bra strap. And then uh, if it gets more extreme, you're going to get the bottoms of the feet are going to turn white. If it gets more extreme, you're going to get a white strap, white strip going from the chin all the way down to the bottom of the neck on the bottom on the bottom side of its neck running from its chin. Almost like uh, that MGK line running down uh, that bird's throat. And then, um, so we got that. And then the white, the, the primary feathers on uh, its wings will also go white. So I don't know what it is, but that's just a common form of albinism. Like another common, uh, some other common like forms of albinoism that you'll see with, or leucism or leucistic is um, a salt and pepper head. Sometimes you'll see that quite a bit, like where there's a lot of white feathers in the head. Another thing that people send me these uh, at least a couple times a year and geese up on the bottom side of their wings on their elbows. There's going to be a lot of white feathers there too. So geese commonly do have like feathers that turn white or don't have any pigmentation to them. And if you start to get more and more extreme forms of it, they come into this... Um, Quill Lake Goose. And it's not just giant Canada geese that have this, although it is more common in some populations, especially amongst giant Canada geese and Western giant Canada geese. Um, but it has been seen in uh, like cackling geese, um, all sorts of different uh, of the subspecies of cackling geese, all the different species, subspecies of Canada geese get it. So whatever it is, um, for whatever reason, it's just a, it's a common albino mutation that Canada geese get. Let's see here. Um, my favorite duck, <laughs> as Marcus Sneerly wants to know what my favorite duck is. And that is gonna, I'm not, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. Widgeons or blue winged teal. It's not a mallard because you can only shoot four of them. Or if maybe yeah, maybe if it's a mallard, if it's if I'm hunting in the Pacific Flyway, where I could shoot seven of my seven of my seven could be mallards. But in the Mississippi, in the Central Flyway, it ain't a mallard because I like to shoot more than four. <laughs> I would like to uh, and uh, those blue wing teals, man, they got me. I've had I've had a couple banger blue wing teal hunts, and uh, once you do that, it, it's hard to. It's hard to deny the magnetism and the charisma that balls of blue wing teal flying over the marsh and like how they communicate with the decoy spread kind of like you can see it on their face like when they look back at your decoy spread and you can tell like oh fuck these things are gonna come back they hit the edge of the pond and they bank like little f-16 fighters and then just come down in ready to play yeah uh and i and i would say like pretty much all ducks within that uh that uh, subspecies, that species of ducks or subspecies, I think it's called like anaspatulus or whatever. So all the blue wing ducks are very, 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 very fun to hunt. Blue, all blue wing ducks, that's going to be blue wing teal, cinnamon teal, and shovelers. They're their own. All of those have the, the identical wing like structure with the blue on the top and uh, the same exact um, speculums. And uh, on, and going places to hunt blue wing teal and doing a teal season is is probably some of the funnest duck hunting experiences that i've had 
Um, I've been to Louisiana to hunt blue-winged teal, and I've been to Mexico to hunt blue-winged teal twice, and I would highly recommend that for anybody that's, um, <laughs> that, that as it just wants to experience it. Hire a guide if you got to. Uh, I did the White Lake Conservation Area um, lottery teal hunt that's on the Louisiana DNR's website, and I won the lottery on my very first try, and it was just a sick experience, but yeah, I would say blue-winged teals are my favorite, are my favorite ducks. All right, <laughs> here we got a legal question for me, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a great legal expert. Remember, if you're getting busted one day for something I say, just tell the game where Nick J said that this would be all right, and uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, a guy named D. D. Frankeren asked me, "When does a bird leave your possession?" Which is a good question, uh, honestly. And there's a couple of ways you can get birds out of your possession, and that is by eating it or gifting it. And those are the only two ways that you can legally get a bird out of your possession. Now, when it comes to gifting, those laws are going to vary state to state. And um, usually when you gift, some places make you have a receipt. All places make you leave tags. So you're going to want to do... Um, uh, and, and there's also different ways of gifting. There's um, somebody comes to your house and picks it up. There's you go to somebody else's house. Any Anytime you are transporting birds, like anytime a bird is in transit and it's not at your personal abode, I think the word is, it needs to have a wing attached. So if you bring a bunch of birds home and then you breast them out and then Billy Bob calls you up and says, hey, I heard you got a bunch of geese. Can you share some? And you say, absolutely. And then you drive those geese that have all been breasted out over to Billy Bob's house. You've broke the law because you cannot transport ducks, geese under any circumstances without wings attached to them. So, um, yes, eating them and gifting them. There's another way of gifting, which is the... Um, the U.S. Mail Service. Um, if, if you're ever on a hunting trip and you want to take a hunting trip that, say, is typically a very successful hunting trip, but you're going to run up against that possession limit, whether that's three days in, like say you shoot your daily limit three days in a row, or maybe you're on day four of your hunting trip or day five of your hunting trip and you're like, shit, we can only shoot like one more bird each. You can gift birds through the mail. And if you're wondering how to do that, um, there's plenty of instructions that are actually in the law books that I'm not even going to try to, ah, why not? Why don't we keep, why don't we try? Um, you got to write on the, here's just from memory. Obviously you got to have the birds tagged and then you have to, uh, write on the box, um, on the outside of the box, what is contained in the box. Um, one time I was going through Minnesota laws and I even found this like really goofy law. I don't know if I'm remembering this right. Boy, I'm really getting into some deep water territory here where I could easily fuck this up. But Minnesota had some laws like where they needed a, you needed a game warden, like a game warden actually to sign off on your package getting sent through the mail. And you could only do it like two times per season or something like that. Um, which is something that you will not find that into in the... Um, you're not going to find that law in the summary of waterfowl regulations handbook. Um, the summaries don't cover everything. So sometimes it's worth going into the, um, not the secretary of state, but where they keep all the laws and regulations of the entire state. Like it's worth going to those websites and then looking at wildlife laws. 
because that's where you get the most detailed laws and regulations. So when it comes to mailing stuff, sometimes you're going to have more stringent regulations. When it comes to gifting stuff, sometimes you're going to have more stringent regulations. Um, the best thing you can do is just eat birds. Eat those birds. Invite people over to your house so you don't have to deal with, like, uh, transporting them. But have a big cookout. You know, if you got a bunch of birds at your house that are breasted out, you got them sitting there legally, they're sitting in your possession limit, have a have a big grill out and uh, get everybody over there and get some get some jalapenos, get some cream cheese, and make some poppers and uh, get them into people's bellies as fast as you can. Um, yeah, you know what? Why not? Why not? I'll talk about this, too. One time I got on this kick, I was like, where does it say you actually need to eat birds? Um because I had the same question too. When does a bird really get out of your possession limit? Or my my real question is, is there a law that says you have to eat ducks and geese? And I was just curious. I don't, I've never like tossed waterfowl meat out. In fact, I love eating my ducks and geese. Um, I work out a lot. I just think it's really good protein. I get my, I get, uh, I, eat, uh, I eat ducks and geese every single day, damn near. But I, <laughs> I just went down this rabbit hole and I was like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty decent at going through laws and rules and like digging stuff up and using the, using the find on page, using, using control F. Like, can I, can I find any law that says that, um, you actually have to eat ducks and geese? And I never did. I never did. I mean, I didn't really give a shit too much. It's not like I'm a lawyer or a paralegal and <laughs> it's not like I spent days looking for it, but I did go down a rabbit hole one time online where I was like, huh. It really doesn't say anywhere that I can find that you're supposed to eat these things or like uh, there is no instructions for getting them out of your possession limit. Um, I know that uh, one thing that uh, a lot of times people get confused about and um, on a federal level, on a federal level, people use the word wanton waste. Like if you uh, if you throw birds into the ditch, that's wanton waste. Well, go read the federal regulations for wanton waste. It says that um, after a bird is downed, you must make every effort to retrieve that bird and count it towards your daily bag and maintain that possession, maintain possession of the bird um, during the hunt. I might have messed that up a little bit, but that's what wanton waste says. Doesn't say anything about fucking throwing birds in the ditch at all. It says retrieve them. And then I, I suppose if you do not make that effort to retrieve them, then it's wanton waste. But what if you did make the effort to retrieve them and then you kept it in your possession limit and then you're driving home from South Dakota and you threw it in the ditch on your way home? What about then? Is then that wanton waste? I mean, you already made the, uh, you made the effort to retrieve it. So um, <laughs> um, I, it's just a rabbit hole I went down one time. I'm not advocating anybody does that. Now, how about if you make the effort to retrieve it and then uh, you uh, bring it home and you clean it and then you uh, put it in freezer bags, you put it in your freezer. And then four years later, you throw it away while you uh, uh, give other people shit on the Internet about how they don't uh, eat all their birds. <laughs> you, we all know there's guys out there that do that, too. Like, I, I eat everything I kill when they see those articles where somebody threw something in the ditch, like, okay, I believe you clean it, and I believe you have three freezers in your basement. But don't give me this bullshit where you eat all your fucking, you know, you eating all those mice you trap in the kitchen. Anyways, 
<laughs> we are not burning through this list as fast as I thought I would, and that's fine. Matter of fact, I got a whole, I've done one page of questions. I got a whole nother page and a half of questions I can go through. And maybe we will just make it a part two. Maybe we'll just end it here. Yeah, why don't we do that? I'm going to do a part two. I'm going to do a part two, and I'm going to record it uh, tomorrow. I've already been going for 34 minutes. I appreciate you dudes sending me these questions. It's been a lot of fun actually going through these and uh, maybe saying some things I shouldn't have said, maybe uh, maybe giving out some tips that weren't helpful, or maybe they are helpful. I, uh, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate you sending me the questions. I appreciate Boss Ammunition um, being a sponsor of this podcast. I appreciate Pacific Calls working with me to come out with the Nick Johnson Signature Series Pacific Goose Call. And, um, I appreciate the guys at Got Game Technologies giving me the chance to help as many people as I can learn the Goose Call by developing the Goose Tech app. So part two on the Q&A session is coming up, uh... Well, I don't know if I'll release it the same week or the week after. Um, Just depends. Anyways, I'm going to sign out. We'll chat with you later, bird nerds. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.